series, and we really want that. It's just a little bit too easy for us to come and passively consume worship service and not be involved and get very little out of it, other than maybe a hint of a feeling or a particularly inspired Sunday. It's really not what we're about here, as you can see in our very humble you know, environment with uh, folks who like me, come up and speak humble messages uh, to the best of our ability. Our goal is for us as a church to be uh, involved in this series and to really participate in it. So I also posted an article, which is hard to read, and I wouldn't read it if you're, like, not interested. Um, And I posted sort of an introduction to our sermon series. I'm not going to lie. We have a tendency around here to to bite off more than we can chew. I mean, last year's sermon series, we did Ecclesiastes in the fall. We did Song of Solomon in uh, the spring. And now I don't even really know what we're doing. Um, As I tried to kind of think through what our sermon series is, I was like, I think we're pretty much just trying to do systematic theology in one semester. So... With that said, we will continue on, but we want you to be involved uh, and, uh, and just take that as a challenge uh, to, to respond, okay? Uh, we'll incorporate that in our service time, worship, and I uh, really would love for some of you to come up and share a testimony. I even have a section there for you to share kind of a testimony relating to one of these topics. And you can do that as a part of the sermon. I'll speak less, or whoever's uh, coming up to speak will speak less, and you can come up and, and actually share how this was really manifested in your life. But in short, what we're doing is the sermon series is called From Jesus to Paul to Practical Ministry. And the idea is to try to take some of these really kind of high and lofty theological things and really distill them down into practical living. What does this look like for us to take those ideas that people have argued about and, and, you know, thought of in a variety of different ways over a couple thousand years and to try to bring those into day-to-day living, Okay. And there's kind of a side theme in there that I don't think you necessarily have to really understand or pick up on, although some of you really struggle with it. And that's that we have tendencies to either look at Jesus or to look at Paul when we're informing how to live and how to think. Okay, Depending on what background you grew up in, maybe just depending on if you're a new Christian, you haven't had much guidance. We just have these tendencies. We either like Jesus and his mission of social justice, which we apply onto him, and this idea of healing people physically and accepting anyone. Or we like Paul, who has this seems like more of a rigid way of believing and thinking about the world. And we might side on one or the other. And in doing that, we really narrow our ability to see how they interact. And a lot of folks really do believe that Jesus and Paul uh, have very different things to say. In some ways, contradictory things. And we're not going to so much get into that today, although next week is, I think, where we'll really start to get into some of the contradictory uh, what seem like contradictory messages between the two. And so I think it's important for Christians, whoa, for us to actually think through, um, look through those passages, try to understand how people can come away with uh, thinking this is different uh, between Jesus and Paul and to really figure out exactly what the common message is behind them. So there you go. That part you don't understand. Just if you understand the first part, I think we'll be okay. All right? Uh, so I'm talking about sin and accountability today. It's no surprise that, you know, one-third of our church is gone. Uh, what it works like, you know, you preach about sin, and then people will go camping instead. Um, so, yes, last week I, I talked about the good news, and the idea that we ought to pin that good news kind of at the top of our, I used the example of Facebook feed, but I don't know what I'm talking about really when I talk about technology, so just excuse me if I'm talking about this in the wrong ways. Um, and that it should really in, you know, be the filter upon which we look at all of their news. Good news in our life, bad news in our life. The gospel helps filter all that other stuff up. We're not careful. We live day to day from just one piece of good or bad news to the next. 
with no real consistency running through how we think about our lives and how we think about the world. We just sort of react to the news that comes our way. But the gospel is really exciting because it it gives us the ability to sort of rise above that and see something that's consistent throughout our world that allows us to uh, to really deal with the good and bad news that we get. And I mentioned last week that there are two aspects of the gospel that I wanted to highlight. The first one is God has not forgotten us, nor has he failed to act on our behalf. And particularly the behalf of the weak, the struggling, the ill, the oppressed, disabled, despised, imprisoned, all that other stuff, right? And then the second thing is that God will continue to work through us, uh, his work through us as the Holy Spirit empowers us to live like him. And he's making us into a joyful, peaceful, and hopeful people. Well, you can't possibly appreciate how good that good news is unless you really understand the bad news uh, uh, and understand it fully. And I, I will, I'll venture a guess as to say that a lot of us today have a bigger problem with understanding the bad news part of this than we do with the good news. We kind of grew up in a, a culture where uh, maybe narcissism was uh, okay, you know, to some degree where the thought or even the word sin was something that we just kind of veered away from. That if we were to ask people what are sort of the top sins, you know, we might get a list of things that are like illegal, but generally speaking, you know, sin has kind of lost some of its power. And maybe in a good way, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, But I think sometimes it's really hard for us to understand and appreciate uh, what this is. And I think we can't possibly understand the good news of God working through us until we understand the bad news and and what that entails. But let me give a few primers before I go into the passages here that I want to use for, uh, for this morning, okay? The first one is we've got to avoid the extremes. And you hear that from me a lot, probably because I have an extreme personality and I'm having to tell myself that a lot, okay? Um, But we've got to avoid the two extremes of thinking of ourselves as inherently evil or inherently good. The Bible really doesn't speak to this issue near as much as we think it does. I know that some of you are thinking, well, as a Christian, I'm not supposed to think that I'm inherently bad. Well, not really. I mean, the scripture portrays us as being a mix of both the spiritual and godly nature, whether or not we're in Christ, and a fleshly sort of sinful nature. Now, that's not to say that that spiritual nature is like fluff and, and, you know, stuff that we can't see and everything that we can see, the physical is bad. That's sort of an old Greek way of thinking about it, which is really not good, and it's kind of infiltrated its way into Christian thinking. Um, But the scripture is a lot more mixed on this idea of whether we're inherently good or inherently evil. And in fact, whether we know it or not, this is actually more of a uh, maybe a sociocultural viewpoint or argument that's been happening since as old as humans are on whether or not we are good by nature or bad by nature. And and during the Enlightenment age, you know, about four or five hundred years ago, we kind of took a little bit of a turn from we're kind of more or less bad people to now starting to think that, no, really, we're kind of like pretty good people. All right? And so we've inherited that sort of thinking that we're inherently good people. But I want you to avoid the extremes of either one of those arguments because I don't think they're very helpful. Um, I think the more helpful argument is that we have both a mix of good and bad things within us. And we've got to kind of deal with that uh, in the ways that the scripture tell us to. Okay, number two. And remember, these are just sort of like primers or, I don't know, introductions to this topic of sin and accountability. Number two is, where does sin ultimately come from? Well, this is not an easy answer either. Um, Certainly James kind of defines the source of sin when he talks about us being uh, drug away from our temptations. 
Uh, a lot of millennials aren't near as comfortable talking about Satan and Satan's work in our world. Uh, certainly, we read through Job and we think about, oh, like, wait a second. Does Satan have this sort of, like, opposite power of God or is God allowing him? And, of course, the problem of the source of evil is not something we're going to, to go into. But I do notice something that's, that's kind of happening and that has happened in our society, I think, over the last 50 or 60 years. And that's that, in some ways, we've kind of depersonalized sin. And what I mean by that is that sin isn't so much something that happens within us as it's something that's sort of outside of us. Institutions are sinful. Culture is sinful. Um, bad organizations are sinful. But as we've moved further and further uh, away from the, I think, the, the gospel presentation of sin in our lives, we have this kind of issue. Sin now or evil is sort of like a public issue. So when something arises, something comes up that's bad, I don't first say in my own life, hey, this is something that exists in me. I say, hey, look at this example of this in society. This is a bad thing. We all need to act and do something about it. And whether we believe that or know it or not, it's, again, an argument that's taken place for a long time. Where does sin come from? Does it really come from inside of us? Or is it something that's sort of presented as an opportunity outside of us in the culture and in the society that we're in? That might not make a whole lot of sense to you. Maybe a better way of putting this is sort of private versus public. You know, when I think about where the worst sins are and the worst evil in the world, do I see the worst evil inside of me and me being capable of it? Or do I see the worst evil as something outside of me, something far off, something there and not here? And we, we, we struggle with that back and forth. Okay, just a primer. That's all I'm going to say. I think the answer to the where does sin come from is that it comes from both and everywhere and all over the place and anywhere we can find it. <laughs> Whether that's public or private or inside or outside or up, upside down and downside up and everywhere else. That was a failed joke. Um, the third one. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm in the kind of a teaching mode about this. I'll try these next, I know these next two points will not be teaching, okay? I'm working on that, guys. I'm working on getting outside of my teacher self and getting into a preacher self. Uh, it's hard when I teach all week, and then on Sundays I come, and it's like easy for me to just, so let me transition out of it in this intro, okay? Please, just give me some grace. <laughs> the third one is this wonderful thing that, oh my goodness, I love talking about with my students, particularly when it comes to deviance in society. And uh, it's called uh, labeling, or how we change our labels of sin over time. So what sins are like the worst sins, or what sins are sort of in vogue at any given time? Uh, this just changes from time to time. And those of you who are parents in this room, where I can see you're smiling, you can remember a time when the sins that are sort of seen as the worst sins today weren't really the biggest sin issues uh, of a generation before that. Many of us, we kind of have our deals. This is the important stuff. This is the stuff you should focus on. This is the stuff you should be careful about. Um, but that changes over time. Not only does, do the labels change over time, but we have a tendency in our day and age to medicalize a lot of our issues. Meaning that, um, well, that's not really, I'm not an alcoholic, so to speak. I, I have an alcohol disease. Okay? Now, I'm not uh, you know, saying that people aren't alcoholics. There's medica medication for alcohol, uh, alcoholism. I'm not making that suggestion. I'm just simply saying we put a lot of things into the category of a medical illness. Depression is that way, right? I've been very open with you guys about being uh, someone who's on depression medication and has been depressed for a long time. Finally, last year, I, I decided medication was the route to go. 
And so rather than depression being something that I have control over, it's just sort of a medical issue that happens to me. The best that I can do is hope and hope that medicine will fix it. Well, the problem with that is not only is that not true, but it has us thinking in a way that makes us think that so many of the problems with us are simply medical chemical problems that we have very little control over. And so in the realm of sin, it's very hard for us to pay attention to some of these scriptures that tell us we ought to change when we're being told that a lot of these problems outside of medication or outside of like some kind of therapy that we're going to get, we're really going to pretty much stay the way that we are. And I want to just sort of add that into the conversation because I think that's important. That's a, a trend, a tendency that we have in thinking about our own issues today. Uh, a lot of people don't know, just to talk about the depression thing, you know, for depression, people with uh, depression, there was a really interesting article that I found just two weeks ago from... Oh, I don't remember what academic journal it was from, but they were just talking about that, that plenty of people who are rich and wealthy, who have over around seventy, eighty thousand, you know, dollar median income, uh, are over-prescribed depression medication. So um, many of them take depression medication but don't actually need it. And when you look at folks who are under the poverty line, or particularly right around the working class line, many of them are under-prescribed depression medication. It's really kind of interesting, you know, that it would that maybe some of that would even matter based on our you know, income and social class. Um, so we have kind of three things. We've got to avoid the extremes of thinking about that we're inherently bad or inherently good. Uh, this sort of you know, public versus private is the sin come from me, the sin come from outside of me. I don't think it's either answer. I think it's both. And this, this new tendency that we have to medicalize and label all kinds of sins as, uh, you know, some being really outside of my control. Well, that's my personality, you know, what am I going to do about it? So in that context, I want to read to you Luke 5. And I have two passages to point out. Uh, these passages come, like I said, directly from your sharing in our anonymous forum uh, this week. So Luke 5. It's a very famous story. I think a lot of you guys know this story, uh, but it's always good to read back through these to pull out things uh, that I think are useful for the topics that we're talking about. Um, so long as obviously we're not, you know, making stretches or things like that. So five in verse, uh, you know, seventeen. So my voice, you know, I've, you've heard it play this morning. Does someone want to read that? Seventeen uh, to thirty-two. And we can even popcorn it if you will get tired of reading, you know. I hate that word. I hate that word so much. Not popcorn just in general, but just the use of popcorn for reading text of scripture. All right, let's popcorn it. Five, seventeen. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat came carrying a man on a paralyzed mat. Uh, <laughs> okay, popcorn. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tile into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave, great, gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. You can actually stop there. I don't know why I wrote to 32. I just wanted to do through, uh, through 26. All right, it's a famous story. A lot of us know this story. But it's kind of an interesting story. Um, Jesus sometimes, I mean, remember this is the Jesus who says you, we need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That seems to focus a lot on how we act and how we interact with people. And Paul's often the one that gets kind of pegged for the gospel of grace. And Jesus gets pegged for almost the gospel of works. That it's like, you know, you, in order to really do what you need to, to do in the kingdom, you've got to act in a certain way. And yet we see Jesus giving grace to someone in a really interesting way. I mean, this guy's just so, he obviously wants to get fixed, helped, whatever it is. They lower him through a house, right? And, which is pretty intense. I don't know what houses look like. I mean, maybe if I was like a good preacher, I'd like put a you know, picture up of like houses back then or, you know, or something like that and give you a better image. But I have no idea. I'm just guessing this is probably pretty difficult because lowering into a house is hard with just a mat. I mean, my goodness. Um, so... The first response he gets from Jesus is probably a little startling to him. Can you imagine you going, being ready to get your, you know, uh, condition, your disability fixed? And the first thing Jesus says is your, your sins have been forgiven, right? And he's probably thinking in his mind like, oh, oh, okay, okay yeah, oh, that's, oh, nice. You're, that's great. It's good news. He's <laughs> like, but also, you know, this other thing here that I have going on, if, if you want to look into it, I mean, it's really whatever you think. Um, but Jesus responds very directly with your faith has healed you. And this is really what's really interesting. It makes me think that this man wasn't just going to be healed. He was going because he believed Jesus did more than just heal people's physical infirmities. And that's why Jesus launches into this whole thing about which is easier. And I don't even know how to answer that question. It's kind of a weird question. I'm not even sure what he's going for. Maybe trying to connect the spiritual and the physical. Maybe trying to connect the idea that God has authority over both. I don't know. We don't have time to go into it. But I think it's very interesting that Jesus sees in this man a faith that allows Jesus to forgive him of his sins. Isn't this a, sa a saving faith? Is, this a, is he saying that all your sins future now are forgiven? Is he saying that I'm just forgiving you up to this point? I mean, we don't know. We don't have enough context to figure this out. But there are a few conclusions that I think we can draw from this, and I want to give you a couple. The first one, and I think this is important, and those of you who have done our focus on Jesus say you kind of know this. The word for sin that the New Testament picks up in particular just means missing the mark, right? It just simply means missing the mark. Now, if we're not careful will fail to appreciate the significance of that definition. Too often when we think about sin, we think about doing bad things. But I would say, if I can, that sin is just about, if not more about, doing certain things and living a certain way than it is about not doing a list of these things that you're not supposed to do. Because in Scripture, Jesus defines the mark as himself. He sees the mark as himself. 
He invites us to follow his lifestyle. And so anything short of that is sin. Now, that might, you know, I don't think that's supposed to initiate this desire in us to like call out sin in any and every area we're in. I don't think that's really what Jesus was about. Um, and I'm never really quite for sure how we've picked up on these passages like this, particularly of Jesus' life, and decided that our goal in life is just to sort of find sin in any and every environment. We're like those people that just can seem to find sin everywhere, even though we don't seem to be able to find it at all in how we're being to people who are sinful and not treating them right. But while Jesus had a complete understanding of what sin was, uh, he was ready to forgive this guy just based on uh, his faith. And so I want to make my first observation, and that's faith in Jesus is what really heals us. But in order to have faith in Jesus, we have to have almost a complete lack of faith in ourselves and others and in our circumstances. And this is actually really hard because I think we would rather have it both ways. Well, we'll have faith in Jesus And if he doesn't really provide for us, we'll have faith in some of these other things too, kind of like a backup. Uh, Faith in, you know, my church that I'm a part of, we'll have faith in the friendships that I have, faith in my own success. Um, It's sort of like Pascal's wager, you know, it's like, which I don't even want to go into, but basically just the idea that, you know, well, I'll choose heaven, and if I'm wrong, you know, hey, at least I was kind of like on the right path, you know, at least it did some good in my life. Um... Paul would say to that kind of thinking, you've believed in vain. You've lived a, a fruitless and purposeless life. Uh, you've, you've been, you know, following after a myth this whole time, if that's really what you think. But this man had to decide at some point that he, his circumstances, his friends, could do nothing about his current state and had to completely put their faith in Jesus. And at some point, we just have to get to that point, get to that realization. That we don't, we don't have faith in ourselves. We don't have faith in the people around us. We don't have faith in our circumstance changing as something that's going to change fundamentally who we are or what we're doing. But we have complete faith in Jesus that he and he alone will have the ability to forgive our sins and move us forward. And I think many of us you know, on our best days believe that and on some of our worst days have the kind of backup plan uh, that, that we use. And thank God that he gives us grace for that. But at some point in our lives, we have to come to that realization. We just do. It's the most basic, uh, you know, I think, thing that we have to come to. We come to him for a variety of reasons. I really don't know in this passage whether he came to him for his sins to be forgiven or whether he simply came to be healed. I would think that it was more than just to be healed because I, I don't think Jesus would forgive his sins if he really just at the end of the day wanted to be healed and that's it. You don't get that same kind of uh, uh, behavior from Jesus throughout his ministry. He usually wanted to test people beforehand to make sure he wasn't just, you know, giving them healing and then that was the it. He wanted them to go beyond just, you know, healing them their circumstances. But we come to Jesus for a variety of reasons, guys. But if we don't leave on a, uh, with a new perspective on sin, we really don't have the ability to put our faith in Jesus. So we come to him for friends, we come to him for we have disabilities, we come to him in our, our realization that we're weak, we come to him for a variety of reasons. Maybe we were born into it. But we absolutely, upon meeting and interacting with Jesus, have to have a radically new understanding of what sin really is. And as you see Paul and some of the other folks in the New Testament, their understanding of sin, uh, it broadened, it widened. They were able to find it in a lot of places in their own life uh, that beforehand they really didn't even begin to understand the full uh, extent of it and the level of it. 
So we come to him for a variety of reasons. Guys, we're sick. This is one of the most common and important, important convictions we have as people of God. Is that we're sick. We are sick people. We're dying. It's no good. We can't figure this stuff out on our own. And this goes and flies against so much of what we as a human race in Western culture have come to think about ourselves. Really the opposite. That we have the ability to do anything we want. Any good thing. Any great thing. We as people can handle it. We can do it. We can accomplish it. We're capable. This is sort of the humanist manifesto. And there's Jesus saying, not even close. And at some level, in in our discipleship and in our following after Jesus, we split on those two things. We have to make a decision about it. And when we make the decision to follow Jesus, it's a commitment, it's a conviction to say, I am sick and dying. And there's only one hope, okay? And it requires both a full understanding, or at least as best as we can muster, of our current situation and the current chances, apart from Jesus, of getting fixed. Well, I, and, and Frontline, uh, I like Frontline documentaries. They've done like six in the last year about people refusing to believe they're going to die. And um, it's re- there's a number of them that are really, really interesting. I, this is kind of dark, and you know, if you have kind of depressive personalities, sometimes this puts you at ease. I don't know. Uh, sometimes it also depresses you. But um, you watch that stuff and you realize, oh, yeah, this is the real world. I feel like I'm... You know, this is reality. But uh, one of the ones I watched probably a a year ago talked about how we now have the ability to keep people on life support. Every single organ in their body on life support. There's not an organ that we can't keep alive on life support. So we tentatively could keep people alive indefinitely. And with our knowledge of that technology, very few people, when they go to the end of their life or near the end of their life, ever really deal with the possibility of them dying. And thinking of them being, being dead. So people aren't, you know, uh, looking, they're not doing their DNRs, they're not resuscitate orders, they're not doing wills. There's just been this kind of new, um, uh, what's the best way of putting it, blindness towards the reality of death. And a lot of people prolong the issues they have rather than just peacefully, uh, you know, dying. And I know this is not something anybody else wants to talk about, you know, and I know why people are camping. Um, and wondering why you aren't there. And that's okay, that's fine. But we have the same problem when it comes to sin. We have this constant thing within us that really wants us to believe we're not near as bad as we really are. And this isn't about, you know, looking at ourselves in ways that are, are less than healthy. You know, ways that, you know, well, I, this is a long list of all the bad, terrible, awful things that I am. But often, that is what happens, and we'll talk about that in, uh, in just a moment. But we've got to realize as Christians that we're sick. We lose the ability, particularly for those of us who grew up in church and were kind of saved from birth, um, to really appreciate sin and in doing that, appreciate God's work in us if we don't realize that. So with that said, that's, that's you know, it's supposed to be kind of bad news. Uh, yeah. I want to go to Romans 5. And by the way, that phrase that, uh, that someone put this week on our anonymous forum was, uh, only the sick need a doctor. Jesus loved that phrase. Jesus is sitting looking at sick people telling them, you know, hey, only the sick need a doctor. You don't worry about it. 
Until you realize you're sick, you don't really ever realize your need uh, for Jesus. And that is step one. This next one, and I think we're going to read it later on in our worship service, but uh, he died for us while we were still sinners. So just a very, very powerful passage, and we'll talk about it here in a moment. Uh, so 5, 1 through 8, you guys want to just go and read those? Read that. Right, read Romans 6, 1 through 23. Just kind of skip over. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, to the glory of the Father, we too may live in the life. For if we have been united with him in the death of his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have died in Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and also alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. You are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you have used that those used to be slaves to sin, they've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now came to allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time? from the things you are now ashamed of. Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
He died for us while we were still sinners. You know, God knows us at our worst, and not just the stuff that we've done wrong. I think what pains God a lot more, if I can say this, is the stuff that we haven't done right, uh, or have failed to do and failed to live up to, um, in accordance with the work that he's trying to do around us. He knows that. He knows us completely and knows us. He accepts us without any reservations. This isn't a God that, you know, like many of us treat each other, that I can kind of handle enough of you, but if you show me a little too much, then I'm going to be, you know, out of here. I'm going to hit the road running. I'm not going to be able to deal with the things that I see in you. Um, It's just not the God that we serve. He makes it very clear uh, that that, that's, uh, you know, from the the get-go, he has no reservations about that. So I think this allows us to adopt a new attitude about sin. And uh, it's the attitude that Paul says in 1 Timothy when he talks about, I'm the worst of sinners. I don't think he was trying to make an analogy. I don't think he was trying to uh, exaggerate. He was trying to clarify that he knows himself better than he knows anybody else, and therefore he knows he's the worst of sinners. Of all the sinners he knows, he knows himself the best, and he's the worst of them all. Because he knows what's in his mind and in his thoughts. And if we're not careful, one of the things we really lose in our day and age is this same reflection and introspection in ourselves. The worst sinners are outside of us some other place. They're there, they're people doing this thing or that thing. But in Christ, we have to, I think, have the conviction that we're the worst. We know ourselves the best, so we're the worst. (laughs) And what Paul is addressing here when he talks about these people who are like, uh, you know, adding sin on top so they can get more grace, are people who are thinking, oh, if I'm the worst, I might as well just keep on heading down that direction. Because the worse I get, the more, you know, God will be able to work in my life. I don't think you have to try very hard to be the worst. It's more just like it's natural within us, okay? And I think that's what he's trying to avoid. But how do we do that? How do we believe that we're really the worst of the worst, but not allow that to to sort of um, snowball into this really low view of ourselves? Because I think that's what a lot of us struggle with, is this kind of low view of who we are and our capabilities. Um, And some of the things that we we kind of repeatedly try to get over, repeatedly try to get rid of in our lives, and seem to just have no real ability uh, or power to overcome that. Paul certainly didn't seem like one of those people. Remember, this is the same Paul in 1 Corinthians who said, you know, I was really down one day because of the weaknesses that I had and the struggles, and Christ came to me and made it very clear, do not... Get down on your weaknesses and your struggles. Because why? Because those are the times where I'm going to be most made manifest in your life. My presence will be most obvious in those areas of your life that you are worst at and have the most guilt in and the most shame in because I'm going to work in those very places, which is amazing. It's one thing for me to polish up a new car and say, you know, ah, look how great it is. It's a whole nother to take a really raggedy piece of junk and turn it into a polished new car. And, and that's what God's saying He wants to do with us. But too many of us, that's a scary thing. We're not going to allow God into those areas. Um, because again, we have too much shame and, and uh, we're not convinced that He really is going to be able to make those areas strengths in our lives. 
So I think we again have to avoid the extremes of I am who I am, which is really our version of saying this, oh, well, if there's more grace, then we might as well just sin more. Well, I am who I am. At the end of the day, you just got to deal with it. This is my personality. This is my experience. This is my background. I am who I am. You are not are who you are. I don't know how to say that, okay? This idea that somehow recognizing our weaknesses and recognizing our, um, you know, failures and faults is healthy and is freeing is such a wrong way of thinking about the world. Because who are you? The person who you are now because of the experiences you've been through and the things that you struggle with are the person that God made you to be. Who's more authentic and more real and more genuine? Faith in Christ would tell us it's the person that God made us into. The person who He's making us into being. And whatever you see of yourself uh, is a whole lot of reasons why you've come to be that. But not necessarily because of God's you know, ability to work in your own heart and in your own mind. So this I am who I am stuff, we've got to be really, really careful about. Some of it's fine. Some of it's you know, learning to love ourselves and be okay with what we have and the gifts that we've been given. And that's one thing. But using that excuse as an excuse to not change and not let God work in us is, uh, is really not recognizing the sin in our own hearts. I think the other uh, perspective here that we get into is the, uh, is the I'm fine perspective. You know, I'm fine. More or less, I'm okay. Uh, this, this just tendency within us to be completely okay with the things that go on and to downplay how devastating they can be in our lives and the lives of other people. I'm fine. Uh, and I think this is when we struggle with a lot in our day and age where we can really kind of keep most of our stuff to ourselves. We're pretty private people. And we're getting more and more private as time goes on. As churches get bigger, as interactions become fewer and more uh, uh, not face-to-face, it's just much easier to hide from ourselves and from other people. And this I'm fine perspective, which it seems like so many Christians wear with a smile, uh, is not okay. This side of heaven, none of us are fine. God has plenty of work to do, and we'll glory in that. And we can take the attitude that Paul takes of, I'm the worst, because that just means I have a whole long path of different things that God's going to work in my heart and in my mind. And just like the teenager that thinks they know it all, that begins you know, to live in the real world and realizes they don't know anything at all, we'll treat sin like that. Okay, I was one of those teenagers, so I know how it, it feels. Okay, We've got to let God work. All right, so that brings me to, uh, you know, this, this kind of how to bring this into a practical realm for us, okay? This is why I call this sin and accountability. Because this is, accountability is one of those weird Christian words that, like, means you had a conversation once where you kind of informed someone you needed help, and they never, ever actually asked you about it ever again. <laughs> so I try to use words that are not, that don't have connotations that are unhelpful, but I'm just going to use this worm, 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 word because I think it's important to re- uh, articulate and to redefine. So we need to have accountability. And accountability, it really goes two ways. You know, number one, it's, it's me taking accountability for who I am and what I've done. Uh, it's just so easy to not admit, to defend our actions and to, um, you know, and to not ultimately own up to the, the uh, consequences of the things that we've done. It's just easy. I mean, I, I get into that normal defensive argumentative mode anytime anybody points out anything that I've done wrong. It's just it's like a natural reaction of survival or of whatever else. 
Or some of you do this differently. You kind of have that like mental assent, kind of like, oh yeah, I did something wrong. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. But I might as well just say that so we can get rid of this conversation, you know? So basically the same thing. Um, there's no different. Just pretending to accept what other you know, people are, uh, are telling you. But both Paul and Jesus saw uh, that there was a real need for a commitment to renewal in, uh, in our lives. A commitment to constantly understanding, uh, you know, the propensities of sin that we have. And that was both a realization that sometimes, you know, that we make at the beginning. This sort of beginning understanding of, uh, you know, who we are and our limitations. But also a commitment to changing those things as we move forward. I think we've got to default into accepting challenges from people around us and actually invite them. We talk about this a lot here in our church because thankfully we have the ability to really be close to each other and know what's going on. But there's still plenty of us who are hiding a whole lot of things going on in our own lives and in our worlds. And guys, when we hide things, it just kills us in terms of being able to really grow in those areas. They just get worse and worse, right? We hide that stuff. Um, and I know it's, it's you know... You earn the right to be able to reveal those things and to get people to reveal those things in, in, into your life. I don't think it's just okay for us to go out and like have you know sessions where everyone comes up and confesses sin in front of everyone. That's not going to do anything uh, because people tend to exaggerate and get crazy on those times anyway. Um, but we've got to be able to accept challenges and invite them in our lives from other people. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, if you don't know... Uh, you know, two or three people in your life who are really struggling with something uh, pretty profound uh, and you don't have two or three people who you have told that you're struggling with something pretty profound, people who need to know, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, you might not really have as many close friendships as you really think. Uh, as a minister, somehow that stuff just kind of like makes its way up to me, you know, because people are like, what? how do I deal with that? I never heard of that. I'm like, oh, that, okay, yeah, it's category, get to my like book of weird things people get themselves into. Um, and, uh, you know, we just have a lot of things that are going on at any given time. And so being able to really, uh, you know, uh, accept those challenges from people and invite them ultimately uh, into our lives and into what we, we have going on is really important. That requires that we do something that is absolutely not a sacrament that any of us really pay much attention to anymore. And that's confessing sin regularly. We just don't do that. For all our criticisms about the Catholic Church and for the things that they've done, they've at least continually made that an important part of what they do, which is just virtually lost from Protestant churches today. We do not regularly confess our sin to, to generally anybody until it's gotten so bad that it's like we have to say something before we're about to commit a crime or do something awful or whatever else, which is way beyond the point of when we should be confessing sin. Guys, this is a normal weekly, monthly thing with people. Uh, and if you're not doing it, uh, don't do it because you feel the need to, because it's not that. Do it because it's incredibly wonderful and freeing when people know what you're going through and they can keep up with you about it. There's something very powerful about the Spirit being able to work through varieties, a variety of people uh, to really keep you on track and, and with what you're doing. But too many of us, we shoulder way too much responsibility for sin just on our own without really inviting anybody in. Or the people that we do invite are not people who need to know. They're people who we're comfortable sharing that stuff with, which generally means we're comfortable because they will literally not say anything back to us. Like, oh, and that's the extent of it. That's not accountability. That is <laughs> movie confession, okay? 
like where you confess the priest, and the priest says, say Hail Marys, and you're good to go. That's the kind of friendship we have sometimes to people. And so people who, who we, we need to be more, uh, you know, uh, I guess in, intentional about sharing with people who really need to know uh, and confessing sin in our lives. Otherwise, we have no chance of dealing with this stuff. So much sin could be dealt with quickly and before it gets out of control, and I'm certainly speaking in my own life, if we would have just opened up to someone earlier on about it. Just said something. Someone who really needed to know about this thing going on in our hearts and in our minds. And I encourage you to take this as a challenge this next week. Um, again, I want to be very careful with, with um, making this clear. This is about asking for oversight. This is about letting people in in our lives who need to know these things. Not need to know because they're my roommate, because that's not necessarily helpful, but need to know because they have some ability to really hold me accountable for this. Um, and by accountability, again, what we mean is someone who will just ask me and talk to me about it. Explore. Who isn't going to be freaked out when I say, yeah, I've been, you know, two months now and nothing's really changed. Because, you know, these things don't change overnight. And it doesn't need to just be, you know, staff and people who are supposed to be in this role. As a community, we will be much, much more healthy when we start on a regular basis uh, having people really confess sin uh, that's going on in their hearts and their minds. And some of the intense stuff and some of the things that, you know, need counseling, which a lot of times things that need counseling, a staff person really could handle. Uh, we have a very counseling mindset now. We need to go see a counselor to get fixed for something. And I like counseling. Counseling's great. Uh, I've done counseling quite a bit myself. But a lot of times, a counselor can help me figure out how to think differently. But it's the people around me in my lives who are going to be the ones to see if I'm doing anything about that stuff at all in terms of my thinking. They're going to be telling me if I'm changing any of this. This is one of the wonderful things about marriage that I've come to discover. Is you have like an inbuilt accountability partner all the time. Even when you don't want it or need it. Um, <laughs> But it's, uh, it's good for you. So we need to be uh, confessing on a regular basis. It's annoying. Uh, I, it's probably one of the biggest criticisms in relationships that I hear about our group is that far too people know things about us that we don't even know how they got to know. And yeah, we've got to be careful about that. There's no doubt. But yeah, that's how family is, right? You, know, you try to tell your family something and you figure out you, know, you swore your mom to secrecy and then your dad's calling you, you know, two minutes later, <laughs> hinting at the fact that they know a secret, you know? And uh, you're like, oh my gosh, again, you know, you guys can't keep anything <laughs> private from each other. I'd much rather have that as a criticism of our church where people really know us and know us well because that creates a culture where people aren't pretending to like you despite knowing the things that are going on in your life. We know those things about each other. We're not pretending that, you know, well, okay, everything's you know, going good. Um, we actually know what's going on and we still like each other, which is pretty amazing considering how many really messed up people we have here in our room together today. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.